Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the July 2011 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. This issue is headlined by an invited review entitled Supplementation of N3LC Puffa to the Diet of Children Older Than Two Years, a commentary by the Espigan Committee on Nutrition. This is a literature review looking at the benefits of supplemental N3 long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids in children over two years of age. In patients with ADHD, the authors found that although 50% of the studies found some benefit to the use of LC PUFA supplements, the studies were so variable as to the form and amount of supplement and the parameters monitored that there was little convincing evidence that long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids actually benefited children with ADHD. They found no evidence that cognitive function in normal children was improved. There was no improvement in the major outcome parameters of children with cystic fibrosis after supplemental long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acid, although there was a potentially beneficial shift towards less inflammatory eicosanoid profiles in two studies that might warrant further investigation. In children with phenylketonuria, limited data suggested that supplemental LC-PUFA was safe, but of only transient benefit to visual function. In children with asthma, there were insufficient data to prove any beneficial effects. The committee concluded that most health claims for the use of N3 long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acid supplements in children and adolescents are not supported by scientific data. The next article is a clinical guideline entitled Skeletal Health of Children and Adolescents with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Papa and colleagues. The authors point out that current evidence suggests that bone health in children and adolescents with inflammatory bowel disease is suboptimal compared with their healthy peers. The mechanism seems to be mainly reduced bone formation, but also perhaps reduced bone resorption, both processes being necessary for normal bone growth. In the long term, the bone health of children with inflammatory bowel disease has not been adequately described. Based on current evidence, the authors have made recommendations for monitoring bone health in children and adolescents with IBD. They also evaluate the current evidence regarding the effect of biologics on bone health and the role of medications such as bisphosphonates in this this population. The next article is a rapid communication entitled, Circulating MicroRNA is a Biomarker of Pediatric Crohn Disease by Zahm and colleagues. Measurement of circulating microRNAs has been proposed as a non-invasive biomarker of Crohn disease. Using sera from children with Crohn disease, healthy controls, and diseased controls with celiac disease, these authors measured serum microRNA levels using a microfluidic quantitative reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction array platform. Findings were subsequently validated with quantitative reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction in larger validation sample sets. 
the diagnostic utility of Crohn disease-associated serum microRNA was examined using receiver operating characteristic analysis. The authors found significant elevations in 24 microRNAs in the Crohn disease patients, 11 of which were chosen for further validation. All of the candidate biomarker microRNAs were confirmed in an independent Crohn disease sample set. None of these candidate microRNAs were elevated in the sera of celiac patients or healthy controls. Receiver operating characteristic analyses revealed that serum microRNAs had sensitivities for Crohn disease above 80%. Significant decreases in serum microRNAs were observed in 24 subsequent children with Crohn disease after six months of treatment. The authors conclude that serum microRNAs might be useful non-invasive biomarkers for Crohn disease and its level of activity. The first original GI article is entitled Leukocytophoresis in Pediatric Patients with Ulcerative Colitis by Tomomasa and the Japanese Study Group for Pediatric Ulcerative Colitis. Leukocytophoresis has been used to treat adults with ulcerative colitis. This multicenter, open-label study from Japan assessed the efficacy and safety of leukocytophoresis in 23 pediatric patients with ulcerative colitis aged 8 to 16 years. Four of the patients were steroid resistant. Leukocytophoresis was performed once per week for five consecutive weeks. The primary endpoint was the stool frequency hematochesia score, and secondary endpoints were clinical, laboratory, and endoscopic improvements. The authors found that the stool frequency hematochesia score decreased significantly from 4.5 before treatment to 1.6 after the fifth treatment. Clinical parameters including stool frequency, visible blood, abdominal pain, and body temperature were improved as was fecal calprotectin and endoscopic score. The steroid dose decreased in 78% of the patients, but the mean decrease from 1.1 mg per kilogram per day to 0.8 mg per kilogram per day was not statistically significant. Adverse effects occurred in 60% of patients, the most common of which was a decreased hemoglobin hematocrit. The authors conclude that leukocytophoresis was well tolerated and was as effective as it is in adults. The types of pediatric patients best suited to leukocytophoresis remains to be determined. One could only wish that the authors had enrolled more severely ill and steroid-resistant patients who would seem to be the only patients one would consider for this dramatic form of therapy. The next article is entitled Immunophenotyping of Peripheral Eosinophils Demonstrates Activation in Eosinophilic Esophagitis by Nguyen and colleagues. Although eosinophils in the esophagus are in an activated state in subjects with eosinophilic esophagitis, detailed studies of intracellular signaling pathways involved in the activation of circulating eosinophils in eosinophilic esophagitis are limited. The aim of this study was to see whether any surface molecules or transcription factors in peripheral eosinophils are activated or phosphorylated in subjects with eosinophilic esophagitis. The authors isolated eosinophils and CD3-positive lymphocytes from whole blood of eosinophilic esophagitis patients and controls. 
levels of surface activation markers, including CD66B and intracellular phosphoepitopes, including phosphorylated forms of signal transducer and activator of transcription, or phosphostat, 1 and 6, were measured within each cell subset. Levels of surface CD66B, as well as levels of intracellular phosphostat 1 and phosphostat 6, were significantly higher in untreated eosinophilic esophagitis patients than in healthy controls. Levels of phosphostat 1 and phosphostat 6 in peripheral blood eosinophils were lower in subjects with eosinophilic esophagitis on therapy compared to untreated subjects. The authors conclude that levels of phosphostat 1 and phosphostat 6, transcription factors involved in inflammatory processes, were both significantly higher in peripheral eosinophils from untreated subjects with eosinophilic esophagitis compared to both patients on therapy or healthy controls. Blood-based measurements of CD66B and phosphostat levels in peripheral eosinophils may be beneficial for identifying eosinophilic esophagitis. The next article is entitled Significance of Molecular Testing for Congenital Chloride Diarrhea by Lechner and colleagues. Autosomal recessive congenital chloride diarrhea is a persistent secretory diarrhea presenting with polyhydramnios and intractable diarrhea after birth. It is a result of mutations in the SLC26A3 gene, which encodes a sodium-independent chloride bicarbonate exchanger. The diagnosis is generally made after detecting high fecal chloride concentration in patients with diarrhea from birth. The authors reviewed clinical and laboratory data from eight unrelated children diagnosed with or suspected of having chloride diarrhea. In addition to physical examination and routine, routine clinical chemistry, the authors performed SLC26A3 mutation analysis by direct sequencing of DNA extracted from buccal swab or peripheral leukocytes. Chloride diarrhea was initially diagnosed by high fecal chloride concentration in seven patients and by mutation analysis in one patient. The authors identified SLC26A3 mutations on both alleles in all eight patients with chloride diarrhea, including three new missense and four new truncating mutations. In this study, the authors have added seven new mutations, including three missense changes of highly conserved residues to a total of 41 mutations in this gene. They recommend that molecular analysis be considered early as a means of diagnosing congenital chloride-losing diarrhea, especially in confusing clinical presentations. The next article is entitled, Use of Deamidated Gliadin Peptide Antibodies to Monitor Diet Compliance in Childhood Celiac Disease by Manzani and colleagues. The aim of this study was to evaluate serum antibodies against deamidated gliadin peptides as a means of monitoring compliance with gluten-free diet in children with celiac disease. Serum samples were collected the same day of endoscopy in 95 children with celiac disease and 106 controls. Using receiver operating characteristic curves, the authors calculated cutoff values for IgA and IgA plus G anti-deamidated gliadin peptide antibodies in their population of celiac patients and controls. 
Of 95 children with celiac disease, 28 were studied during the first year after gluten-free diet introduction with interview and serum collection every three months. Serum samples were collected in an additional 106 children with celiac disease on a gluten-free diet for more than a year. In both groups with celiac disease on gluten-free diet, the authors also evaluated IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase antibodies and IgA anti-gliadin antibodies. The cutoff values determined for the deaminated gliadin peptide antibodies were 13.1 arbitrary units for the IgA antibody and 16.5 arbitrary units for the IgA plus G antibodies. After six to eight months on a gluten-free diet, the prevalence of positive IgA and IgA plus G deaminated gliadin peptide antibodies was significantly higher in partially versus strictly compliant children. And at nine to 12 months, only the prevalence of positive deaminated gliadin peptide IgA plus G antibodies remained significantly higher. At nine to 12 months, the sensitivity of the IgA plus G antibody titer in detecting poor compliance with a gluten-free diet was 100%, while the sensitivity of the IgA antibody was only 44%. In the 106 children on gluten-free diet for more than a year, sensitivity for detecting poor compliance with diet was 60% for the IgA antibody and 76% for the IgA plus G antibody. The IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase antibody and the IgA anti-gliadin antibody sensitivities were much lower at 24% and 4% respectively. The specificity of the four antibody tests was comparably high in detecting compliance with diet. The antibodies against deaminated gliadin peptide was no better than the IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase antibody for celiac disease screening. The next article is entitled Treatment of Infants and Toddlers with Cystic Fibrosis Related Pancreatic Insufficiency and Fat Malabsorption with Pancrelipase MT. Although it is common practice to allow infants with pancreatic insufficiency from cystic fibrosis to take their pancreatic supplements by opening capsules and mixing the contents with a spoonful of applesauce, the safety and efficacy of this approach has not been evaluated. The aim of this study was to assess the efficacy, ease of swallowing, and safety of four dose levels of pancrelipase microtablets, pancrease MT, given by spoon after mixing the capsule contents with applesauce. The study was a randomized, investigator-blinded, parallel group pilot study in DNA-proven infants with cystic fibrosis and pancreatic insufficiency. Pancrelipase 2mm enteric-coated microtablets were given orally. The 16 subjects, 6 to 30 months of age, were given 500 units of lipase per kilogram per meal for five run-in days. Then, subjects were randomly assigned to one of four treatment groups, receiving 500, 1,000, 1,500, or 2,000 units of lipase per kilogram per meal for the next five days. The primary endpoint was medication efficacy as measured by a 72-hour coefficient of fat absorption and 13-carbon mixed triglyceride breath test. Compliance was excellent for the entire study. 
none of the four dose regimens significantly influence the coefficient of fat excretion relative to the baseline period, medians ranging from 83 to 93%. During the run-in period, the median cumulative percent 13 carbon excretion was 11%. After randomization, the median cumulative percent carbon 13 excretion was 18% in the 500 unit group, 14% in the 1,000 unit group, 10% in the 1,500 unit group, and 3% in the 2,000 unit group. The range of 13 carbon values in each group was broad so that the differences between groups were not statistically significant. Ease of swallowing was scored fair to good in each of the treatment groups. Mild GI symptoms were reported in patients at all dose levels. The authors conclude that pancrease MT at a dose of 500 units of lipase per kilogram per meal resulted in a coefficient of fat absorption of approximately 89% in these infants with CF and pancreatic insufficiency. Pancrease MT doses were well tolerated and ease of swallowing was good to fair. Results of this small study indicate that a dose higher than 500 units of lipase per kilogram per meal did not significantly increase the coefficient of fat absorption. The first original hepatology and nutrition article is entitled Oligosaccharides in Four Different Milk Groups, Bifidobacteria and Rubinococcus obium by Copa and colleagues. The aim of this study was to identify a link between the total amount of breast milk oligosaccharides and the fecal microbiota composition of newborns at the end of the first month of life, and to establish the role, if any, of the different oligosaccharides in breast milk in determining the gut bacterial composition. Breast milk samples from 39 women were classified by high-performance anti-exchange chromatography into four groups by their characteristic patterns of oligosaccharide content. Group 1 had the highest concentration of oligosaccharide and contained all chemical types of flucosyl oligosaccharides. Group 2 contained only 35% of the total oligosaccharides of Group 1 because of a lack of alpha-1,2 fucosyl oligosaccharide. Group 3 contained only 45% of the total oligosaccharide content of Group 1 because of a lack of alpha-1,3,4 fucosyl oligosaccharides and Group 4 contained only 8% of the total oligosaccharide content of Group 1 because it contained only 1,3-fucosyl oligosaccharide. DNA from the breastfed infant stools was obtained at 30 days of age and processed by polymerase chain reaction analyses that allowed the identification of the six major species of bifidobacteria and one species of ruminococcus. Denaturing gradient gel electrophoresis analysis was also performed. No significant differences in bifidobacteria species composition was noted between milk groups 1, 2, and 3. However, infants fed with group 4 milk showed a microbiota characterized by a greater frequency of bifidobacteria adolescentis and an absence of bifidobacteria catenulatum. For the first time, a high percentage of the ruminococcus genus in infants fed with all milk groups was found. The authors conclude that milk groups 1, 2, and 3 
containing an amount of oligosaccharides ranging from 10 to 15 grams per liter, produced a substantially identical neonatal intestinal microbiota, despite qualitative and quantitative differences in oligosaccharide content. Newborns taking group 4 milk with only 5 grams per liter of oligosaccharide harbored a different intestinal microbiota. The next article is entitled Urotensin II Levels Are an Important Marker for the Severity of Portal Hypertension in Children by Power and colleagues. Urotensin II is a somatostatin-like cyclic peptide recently identified as the most potent human vasoconstrictor peptide. The contribution of urotensin II to peripheral vascular tone in disease states such as chronic liver disease and portal hypertension is poorly characterized, especially in children. In this study, the authors aimed to determine whether urotensin II levels in healthy children are ontogenetically regulated and whether serum urotensin II levels are impacted by chronic liver disease. Urotensin II levels from 129 healthy controls were compared with those of 80 healthy adults, and levels in a cohort of 20 children with chronic liver disease were also measured by radioimmunoassay. The authors found no correlation between urotensin II level and age in healthy children. Urotensin II levels were similar in adults and all children. Urotensin II was significantly elevated in children with liver disease compared with controls. In addition, urotensin II levels positively correlated with the severity of liver disease as determined by the child Pew score and the pediatric end-stage liver disease score. Levels of urotensin II also correlated with long-term clinical outcome suggesting that urotensin II may be an important marker of the severity of portal hypertension in children. It is independent of age and may be a potential therapeutic target in children with chronic liver disease. This concludes the JPGN podcast for July 2011. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the NASPGAN website at naspghan.org. JPGN is the official journal of ESPGAN and NASPGAN. The co-editors are Melvin Heyman and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer.